well not to disappoint, we're going to start out with something somewhat funny. There was a nun who worked in a local home healthcare sort of agency, and she was making her rounds when, in the process of that, way out in the middle of the country, she ran out of gas. Now, she was in the country, but uh, she ran out of gas. And to her luck, though, there happened to be a gas station not far off from where she was located. So she walked to the gas station, and she talked to the attendant and asked if she might borrow a gas can. But... Unfortunately, the guy had loaned his gas can a couple of days earlier and had not been returned. So he didn't have one he was willing to loan to her or that he had for her. And so he said, I'm sorry, I don't have one. And so she said, no, no worries. So she went back uh, to her car, walked all the way back to her car and, and scrummaged around in, in, in her stuff to see if she could find something in which to put gas in. And sure enough, she found something that she, would, she thought was pretty appropriate. And it was a bedpan. And so she walked back to the gas station and showed the gas attendant what she had discovered. And he thought it was quite odd, but he said, I guess it'll work. And so he filled her bedpan with gasoline. And she walked back to her car. And as she was filling her car from her bedpan with gasoline, um, two men happened to walk by. And one of them turned to the other and said, now that's what I call faith. (laughs) Think about it for a minute. Do we need to spell it out? Maybe not. You know, when the world looks at us and the challenges that we face and the things that we attempt to do or the works that we seek to accomplish for the Lord, they sort of look at us and they see the impossibility and they sort of say, sort of jokingly, good luck, buddy, I don't think it's going to work. And they question and wonder about our faith and this person that we call Jesus Christ whom they do not know. What these two men did not know is this lady knew that inside of the bedpan was none other than gasoline, and she had put her faith in that gasoline and knew that gasoline starts cars. We know in whom we put our faith and trust in, and his name is Jesus. And because of the person of Jesus Christ, we see what they do not see, and we know that he is more than sufficient and more than enough to meet our needs in our time of need with all the power and all the sufficiency that we could ever need. And so as we take a look at our text this morning, we see that the Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is very much aware of that reality. He knows, being led of the Holy Spirit, that we have been saved from a life into a new life. The old life we left, now we're in a new life. Yet, in this new life, we still live in the old world. We still struggle with the same temptations and the same trials and the same tribulations. And maybe we live even in the same house with the same old people and around the same old neighbors. And we go to work every day in the same old world. And as a result of that, he understands through inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we are going to need more than just ourselves to be able to accomplish and achieve by faith what God has called us to achieve and to accomplish in the new life. And so in our salvation experience, God sort of dresses us or puts on us the, 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 the team's uniform, so to speak. And he clothes us, he puts on us this team uniform that is fully functional and more than enough that we could possibly ever need in the equipping and the empowerment that we need in order to engage that which seems to the world as impossible. And the reality is that sometimes as we see through fleshly eyes, we too, like the world, think that what we are facing, regardless of how small or how large the circumstance or situation may be, that maybe we don't have the faith that is 
is sufficient enough to overcome this obstacle, to defeat this giant, to see this circumstance, to just dissolve. How many of us would like to have more faith than you have right now? Anybody join me sometime? You'd like to have more faith than you have? Well, I want to tell you this morning that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you already have all of the faith that is necessary to confront any challenge, any giant, any obstacle, any barrier, any temptation that could ever come your way. You already have sufficient faith. It's not that you need more faith. What do you mean by that? Hold on, we're going to look at it in just a minute. Now, here as we take a look at the, the, the dressing or the, the team equipment that God has given us at salvation, we have already identified three very important elements of that armor. We have talked about, as we're going to look at the screen, the belt of truth. The belt of truth tells us that in our commitment to divine, absolute truth from God's word, accepting and submitting to its authority... Over every aspect of our life, we have more than enough truth in order to confront, to combat, to engage, and to overcome any untruth that Satan would throw at us. The Bible is the Word of God. It is the truth by which we've been given through the gospel of Jesus Christ to more than equip us and empower us to defeat any untruth that the world would come at us and try to defeat or destroy or hinder our faith. So the truth is very important. We've talked about that. We've talked about the breastplate of righteousness and that he's equipped us, he has clothed us in the breastplate of righteousness upon our salvation that positions us in this, what I'm going to call the imputed righteousness of Christ. What, is, what I mean by imputed, it means that he has imputed it onto us, in us, and upon us. It is in us. We are positioned now in this righteousness that is not our own, but a righteousness that we receive through faith in Christ. His work, having been accomplished for us, now becomes our work, and we are now grounded and rooted on that righteousness, and now we are able, by grace through faith, to be able to live out this sanctified life that is ours to live out in Christ. In other words, Grace becomes more than sufficient. Because what does truth do? You and I are well aware of the reality that most of us in here uh, have not lived up to every truth that we know about in the Bible in the last four hours. Right? And because we're sinners and the truth convicts us of our sin, then what do we require? What do we need? We need grace. And so as a result of that grace, the breastplate of righteousness wrapped around us helps us and enables us then to live out this life through grace in Jesus Christ, being wrapped in a righteousness not of our own doing, but of his doing. And so then we can move forward and overcome the enemy. We've talked about then the gospel of of peace, which is the shoes that he's equipped us with, the shoes that have been wrapped around our feet to anchor us and to secure us in the salvation that we have in Christ. In other words, we can't slip, stumble, or fall. Because here the truth is, it convicts us, right? And as a result of that condition, we rely upon grace, but the enemy comes and whispers into our ear, you're, you're, you're going to slip, you're going to fall, you're not genuine, you're not true, you're not right. And yet the gospel wrapped around us gives us the anchor and the stability, the assurance and the security that we will not stumble and fall, nor can we ever lose our salvation based upon anything that we have done or failed to do. 
And so we are then wrapped around this, this beautiful concept around our feet for security and for stability and to anchor our faith in the gospel shoes. Now he gives us this beautiful thing called faith, this shield of faith. What does that mean? Simply put, it is the simple, essential, and necessary faith that's possessed by all who hear the gospel call and place their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's the initial faith that happens at salvation and continues throughout one's new life in Christ, equipping and empowering the Christ follower in the disciple's journey. Here's how it works. The truth comes and convicts us that we are sinners. It helps us understand that without Christ, we are condemned already and destined to eternal punishment, the Bible calls hell. Yet because of that, the grace of Christ becomes real to us and we recognize that Jesus died on the cross for our sin against God and that he is the solution, he is the answer for our sin. So then how do we recognize that? We recognize that because it's a work of God. We hear the gospel call turning us from a life of the old life into the new life. And as we turn, we can't turn ourselves, we turn to faith, we turn from unbelief to belief, from untrust to trust, from no faith to faith, because faith is given to us in order to be saved. Faith is something that is granted to us at our salvation. We don't have to muster up faith to be saved. It is something that he bestows upon us, it is something that he gives us, it is something that he equips us with in order to be saved. And so faith is a gift. Well, how can you say that? Look at the next verse. I want you to look at, at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. On the screen, it says, to him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. When does faith begin? It begins at salvation. How does it begin? Ephesians 1.15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith is not some obscure thing that, that this, this abstract concept that I have to muster up. Jesus Christ is the object of my faith. And when I believe in him, I am putting my faith in the person of Jesus and while my faith may be small, Jesus is never small. And so when I put my faith in Jesus, because he is larger than even my faith itself, then I have all of the faith that I need because Jesus is always everything that I could ever need to face any giant, any, any circumstance, any trial, any, anything. Because Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace you are saved through faith. And it continues on, not on your screen, but it is a gift of God. It is not of yourself. So grace is a gift because salvation is a gift, but so is faith. Faith is a gift. God gave you the faith that was necessary to be saved when you put your faith and trust in him. It's not something you had to muster up. It's not something you could do on your own. Could you say yourself? You can't save yourself, can you? You can't. That's why Jesus had to come. He had to come to die on a cross so that we might be saved from our sin against God. 
And so Jesus came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He took upon himself our sin on the cross and died in our place. We cannot put our faith and trust in Jesus. He gives us the faith to put our faith and trust in him. It is a gift that he gives us. For by grace you've been saved through faith in that it is not of yourselves, but it is a gift from God. Grace and faith are a gift at salvation. And he gave you all the faith that was necessary for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus when you were saved. So here's the conclusion I've had after a couple of days of sort of chasing a whole bunch of rabbits. Is there ever a circumstance, is there ever a situation in your life that is greater than your sin before you were saved? I, I, I would... I would bigger to differ with you if you would agree there is there's nothing greater than your sin against god before salvation there's no obstacle no barrier no circumstance no giant no trial no tribulation there's nothing greater than your inability to save yourself and so when you came to faith in jesus because that faith was a gift he gave you the greatest faith that you could possibly ever need to overcome the greatest obstacle, the greatest barrier, the greatest giant, and he gave, you gr- he gave you grace and faith to overcome your sin and to put your faith in Jesus. So let me ask you, after salvation then, if that is the greatest faith that you would ever need in your life, what circumstance, what situation, what giant, what obstacle, what barrier, what difficulty, what hardship could you ever face that's greater than your sin? Zero. There's nothing that you will ever face after your salvation that is greater than your need for a Savior. And if he gave you sufficient enough faith at the point of conversion to save you from your sin against God then why would you not have enough faith after that to overcome some of the the petty things that we somehow analyze and evaluate as greater than life itself, which they're not, because it's just a matter of perception, where we would not have enough faith already at our disposal to tap into so that we might use it at the opportune time. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not in and of yourself, but it is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God, just like grace. It's not something that you have to muster up. It's something that you already have. But because we have been dressed, clothed, equipped, empowered with enough faith to be saved and enough faith to live out the Christian life, then why are we exercising that faith? Good question. Let's take a look at the text this morning, and I want to look at four very important passages with each of the four points that I want to talk about, about how we can then see our faith materialize with the consequences and the circumstances of life. First of all, faith will anticipate adversity. Faith will anticipate adversity. Faith, in other words, is going to, is going to be ready at the right moment. It is in a constant state of preparedness. For at the right time, in the right way, when elevated, it will protect, shield, and guard you from whatever the enemy throws at you, hoping that he can destroy you, cripple you, render you incapacitated, and prevent your progress in Christ. Notice he says in the opening line, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith. 
in all circumstances, in every kind of circumstance, in every way. He's already described three aspects of the armor that he has given us. He's talked about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and he's talked about the gospel shoes. Now he's about to talk about three more elements of what he's equipped us with as we engage the enemy and empowered to overcome him. And he's talking about the shield of faith. The shield of faith is equally as important as the three that he has just mentioned. And the two that are going to come after this are equally as important. And these, the, the, these aspects of our equipment then help us to face any and every circumstance that might come our way. And they're going to come. They're going to come. How do you know that? Well, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Matthew 8, 23. If you have your Bibles, turn there. I know I have provided the screen on there, but it's always good to take a look at your Bible. Matthew 8, 23. Now, here we see in this passage, beginning with verse 23, that Jesus and his disciples are in the town of Capernaum. That's on the northwest region of the Sea of Galilee. And they are heading down to a place called Gardarenes, which is in the southeast part of of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. So they're going to cross the seven miles. The, the Sea of Galilee is not really a sea. To us, it's kind of like a lake, really. But to them, it was a sea. And, and it is, and, and it's in its most widest part, it's seven miles wide. That's, the wide. that's as wide as it gets. And Jesus and his disciples are going to have to move from northwest to northeast in the widest section of the sea. And so notice what happens in the text. And it says in verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now notice that his disciples are following Jesus. They're not outside of the will of God. They're inside of the will of God. They're following Christ as disciples should. They're following him. If you think that you're not going to have adversity when you commit to Christ and you commit to follow him, you need to wake up because adversity is going to come. Adversity doesn't just come to those who are not following Christ. It comes to those who are following Christ. And he's going to shoot fiery darts at you and arrows at you and seek to destroy and, and to, to, to devastate and to discourage you in your walk. And so when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. It's not uncommon for there to be incredible storms on this very small sea, so to speak, this, this, this place in this part of Israel. Uh, there was a mountain region that was to the east of, the, of this large lake, and, and, and the winds would come over the mountains and drop into the sea and cause incredible storms. And most of the disciples who came from a fisherman's life understood how dangerous they could be when one of these storms just quickly, unexpectedly arose. And they more than likely had friends, if not neighbors, who were also fishermen who died while fishing at sea when one of these storms came, came blowing in unexpectedly. So here they are with Jesus. They're out on the boat following him, and a storm happens. And where's Jesus? He's asleep. How insensitive of him. Have you ever felt like that? Hey, Lord, I'm going through all this stuff, and you're not, you're not paying attention. You're not watching. You're not aware. You're not actively involved in this. And the disciples more than likely are feeling this as well while they're bailing water as fast as they can to keep the boat afloat because it's taking in water as the water is coming over the boat and onto the, you know, onto the ship. They're bailing as fast as they can. And Jesus is asleep on the boat while all this is going on. 
Notice what happens. And they went and woke him. I wonder who it was that was designed as the, the guy that was going to go wake Jesus, or the guys, they. And I think the reason why it's they is because not one person would volunteer to do that by himself. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, you wake him. No, you wake him. No, you wake him. Okay, I'll go if somebody will go with me. So they went together and they woke him up. And notice what they say. Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. Notice their perception. What do they believe? They believe they're going to die. We're going to die. We are perishing. Are they really? You know, when you're going through a circumstance or a situation and it looks impossible, how do you feel? There's no way out. The end of the road. I'm about to bite the dust. And they say this to Jesus. And he says to them, why are you afraid? Notice, notice the phrase, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Is it true that they have little faith? We could debate about this all day long. I'm convinced that while their faith, their faith may be small, the object of their faith is not small. Jesus was with them in the storm on the boat. And he is more than sufficient in his power, his sovereignty, and his authority to do what is necessary to save them. It wasn't a matter of their little faith. It was a matter of them placing their faith in the one who is the object of their faith, Jesus himself. And I think a lot of people get hung up with the fact that the, the disciples here had little faith, and they chide them for having small faith. To be honest with you, I have small faith, but so do you. We all have small faith, but we don't have a small Jesus. Jesus is greater than any fear and any obstacle that we could possibly have. And if you take a look at the text, you suddenly realize, notice, that he rebuked the winds, indicating to me that because it was a rebuke, it was more than just a natural phenomenon. More than likely, there was someone behind that, meaning the devil himself that was trying to prevent them from reaching their destination. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They were flabbergasted because they had never seen anything like this from Jesus before. And yet here we see adversity strikes. And when adversity strikes, what does faith do? It runs to the object of one's faith, Jesus. And Jesus, because he is with us, and in us is sufficient enough for whatever we may face. Point number two, faith will not only anticipate adversity, but faith will adapt quickly. There's a quick adaptation here because here we see in the text, he says, in all circumstances, he says, take up the shield of faith. That take up means to take up, not only pick it up, but to lift it up. It's one thing to see it, it's another thing in obedience to retrieve it, and it's another thing then to lift it up as you see and as you're aware that the 
arrows, that the darts, the flaming darts from the enemy, as you see him approaching, you pick it up at the right time, at the right moment, and you use it as a shield of protection. You take it up. It implies that there's an obedient receptivity. There is a responsibility that the Christian soldier has in spiritual warfare to see the flames coming, to recognize you're in danger, to reach down for the shield, and to pick it up and hold it up while the darts or the arrows are coming. That's our responsibility. That's our task. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 29. I want to look at, at another passage here that, uh, that sort of helps us understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. Mark 9. Um, it, this is a beautiful passage where um, there's this unclean spirit inside of this little boy. And uh, we see in this unclean spirit that, uh, that Jesus before this is in, in this, this place called the Mount of Transfiguration. That's a, that's a huge word. And, and if you're not... You know, I've been to church a lot. It, it just really means that Christ sort of displayed his glory in a way that he had never displayed his glory before to James, John, and Peter who went with him. He only took three disciples with him, and he went to this mountaintop, and he there he, he, he showed these three disciples who were the inner circle of the inner circle his glory. He radiated the glory of God. And not only that, but Elijah and Moses show up. They come from heaven, and they show up, and they see these three there, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And what they want to do is they want to build a, a couple of uh, a worship places for each one of them, and they want, to, they want to stay there. They don't want to leave. I mean, who wouldn't want to stay on the mountaintop your whole life and never come down to reality? But the fact is that Jesus and the three come down, and as they come down, they are faced in Matthew 9 with this discussion, more of an argument that's going on between Jesus and the scribes. Now, what has happened is this father has brought his son to the disciples. Actually, he brought his son to Jesus. He had heard that Jesus was in town, and he brought his son to Jesus. But Jesus obviously was not present because he was at the mount up there with, with James and John and, and, and Peter. And so he's not there. And so he does the next best thing. He relies upon Christ's disciples. And Christ's disciples attempt to heal the boy, but they don't succeed. And because they have failed, the scribes see an opportune time for them to get in this discussion, this theological discussion, about why they don't have enough power to heal this young boy. And they're debating back and forth, more of argumentation. And Jesus comes in, and there's a silent hush about the crowd because Jesus has arrived, and the, the crowd has marveled that Jesus is finally present. And so Jesus turns in 921, and notice uh, what he says. And Jesus asks his, his, uh, asks the father. How long has he been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can. It's not more of a question, but it's more of a hope. Uh, his hope is in the compassion of Jesus. But his faith is that Jesus is going to help him. And Jesus said to him, if you can, he's not, he's going to, what do you mean, if I can? <laughs> of course I can. If you can, yes, I can, because all things are possible for those who believe. Why is that? Because Jesus is present. 
And there's nothing that Jesus cannot do. Please tell me something that Christ cannot do. If he died on a cross for our sin and defeated death by rising from the dead, and now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father as the divine Son of God that he was before and he always is, still is today, tell me something that as God, there's nothing that Jesus cannot do. Jesus can do anything. It's not a fact of Jesus being impossible. Jesus can do all things. And so then he says in verse 24, immediately for the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. You ever said that in the midst of trouble and trial and difficulty and hardship? I believe, but I don't have enough faith. I don't believe enough. Help my unbelief. Strengthen my faith. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together and he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. He arose. Hmm. Incredible. The immediate reaction of the father, when he saw the impossibility of what he was asking, where did he turn? Did he hesitate? Did he wait? Did he turn from Christ? He turned toward Christ. Faith adapts quickly to the circumstance of the situation, and faith turns. It's not a matter of, do I have small faith or large faith or enough faith? Faith automatically turns to the one in who is the object of our faith, and in that quick adaptation to my circumstance, to my situation, to my giant, to my temptation, whatever it is that, is, that the enemy is throwing at me, because this obviously was Satan who had possessed him with demonic spirits. So it's the devil was at work here. And when I turn to him, like this father, I find immediate relief and release and the power sufficient enough to do what needs to be done. I think sometimes we need to understand that we do lack faith. Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Help me turn to you and put complete, total trust and reliance upon you help me turn help me trust help me put faith intellectually i know but emotionally i need to trust we talked about this on on friday night with the pastor we had to get together and i asked i asked mike if he had ever prayed for more faith and i have to honestly say to you i don't think i've ever prayed for more faith I've never asked God for more faith. And I wonder if that's something that I should have done for years. Because I never conceptualized faith in this manner. This is somewhat of a new concept for me in, in all reality. And this whole concept of faith being something that was given to me at my salvation. And that I have more than sufficient enough faith to be able to come whatever circumstance, whatever barrier, whatever obstacle, whatever challenge, whatever giant is in our path. It's already available. I've already been equipped with it. It was given to you and to me, if we are Christians, sufficient enough faith. The problem is, I'm not turning to that which has already been given to me and tapping into the resource that is already available. And that's what faith does. It quickly 
turns from self and turns to Christ. Number three, faith not only anticipates adversity and adapts quickly, but it acts decisively. Faith will act decisively in all circumstances, he said. Take up the shield of faith, the shield of faith. The Roman had two shields. Um, and there's a debate in regard to which shield this was, and I don't think it really matters, but I do believe that it has to do with the larger shield. But the first shield that I want to talk about is a smaller shield, and that shield is something that the Roman soldier would have, and he would have strapped onto his forearm, so to speak, and it'd be a smaller shield that he would use in close combat when he was having sword-to-sword combat in close proximity with the enemy. He would use that shield. It was a smaller shield. And so I think sometimes it's safe for us to conclude that we all need the shield of faith when we're in close proximity of the enemy because we've talked about wrestling, you know, that old Texas draw that I have, the wrestling that comes when sometimes we're engaged with the enemy. It seems like hand-to-hand combat, doesn't it? It seems like the enemy's up close and personal, that he's in our business all the time and he's right there. And so I think sometimes in that struggle, in that wrestling, in that hand-to-hand combat, yes, we do need a shield of faith to protect us from the blows and the attacks of the enemy. But there was also a larger shield and that shield was about two and a half feet wide and about four feet tall. Obviously, most Romans were much smaller than me back in their day because I'm not sure a four foot or four and a half tall shield would would protect a guy that's like six five unless i you know i guess i'd have to you know but that that shield while sort of sort of most of them are sort of rounded off was used to link up with other soldiers if you've seen any sort of a you know roman movie you know movies with romans combating they would line up in a line and they would put up their shields and they would connect them with the one next to them and they would put them up when the arrows are being shot you know by the enemy and it would shield them and as they held those up they would advance the line would advance and and many believe that and and i i agree with their conclusion that more than likely it's the larger shield that is being described here because of the arrows that are coming to wound them and maim them and cripple them and stop the advancement of conquering them. So we have here this, this decisive act that these soldiers have. When, they, when, the, when, the, when the arrows are coming, they grab them, hold them up, and they connect them with the one next to them, which is a beautiful illustration of the fact that you can't stand against the enemy by yourself. It's kind of a side note here. If you're some lone ranger out there trying to do spiritual warfare on your own, you're, you're going to be more vulnerable rather than linking arms with the, the person's faith next to you because as we link up with others, their faith with our faith helps us because in times when your faith is, is, is you're not turning to Christ as you should, maybe they are, and so we need each other. There's a linkage here of mutual community and strength. But here is a decisive act on the part of these soldiers to pick up their shield when the arrows are coming for self-defense. It's a decisive act. It's a deliberate act. Matthew 14 talks about a similar deliberate act when we see in this beautiful passage a time when Jesus is is a, a little bit tired from the day and so he sends 
uh, his disciples off onto the boat, and they again are on the Sea of Galilee. It's another storm that's coming. And uh, while they're out on the sea and a storm does come, this storm is not a storm that's, that's a storm that's going to cripple them or that's going to cause them to lose faith, but it is more than likely an opportunity for them whether they're, they're paddling or they're rowing and it's, it's, it's exhausting and they're tired and, and it's about maybe six o'clock in the morning just before the sun is about to come over the horizon and so it's sort of a, a foggy morning so to speak where there's a little bit of light but it's still some darkness and then notice what happens in the text in Matthew 14 beginning with verse 25 and in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. They obviously knew that whatever was coming was supernatural. And they cried out in fear. Obviously, they didn't think it was God or it was Christ. They thought it was something that was coming to harm them. And immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. How many of us need to hear that from time to time? Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. On the water. You know, I, am, I don't care how many times I read this, it, it kind of blows me away. To see Simon Peter ask this of Jesus. He's asking Christ to do something that is so supernatural and so outside of the realm of any human capability. It just sort of always blows me away. And there's something in my brain that wants to, you know, sort of question all of this. But I know because of Scripture, it's reality. And Jesus not only commands Peter, but he also commands the water to allow him to walk on the water. So the water and Peter both obey him at the same time, and he walks on water, and he defies then this possibility that is outside of human scope, and so Peter does. He says, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, and he walks on water, and he comes to Jesus. So here he is walking on the water, walking toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. What did he do? He had his eyes on Christ, who was the object of his faith. He saw the impossibility of getting out of the boat and walking on the water. But he saw Jesus, who, whom he knew had the power that was sufficient enough for him to walk on water. And he asked Jesus, he said, yeah, come on, come walk on water. So he steps out of the boat. He begins to walk on water, and he's got his eyes on Christ and begins to walk toward Jesus, but all of a sudden the waves are beating up against his, the side of his legs, and he begins to then look at the waves and takes his eyes off of the object of his faith, who is Jesus, and what happens? He's immediately filled with fear. And he looks then to Jesus and said, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, and he took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Peter turned without delay to Christ in his moment of need. Did he have sufficient faith in order to walk on water? Yes. Why? Because the object of his faith was present. But even though the object of his faith, who is Jesus, who is present, he took his eyes off Christ and put it on his circumstance, and as a result of that, he began to sink. But the moment he put his eyes back onto Christ, Christ reached down and picked him up, and together they walked on water back to the boat. That's what faith does. It acts decisively at the right moment and in the right way, and looks to Jesus for the help and the support that's needed. Number four, as we close, we need to advance confidently. As I said earlier, that this, uh, this shield 
that was about four and a half to two and a half feet wide and four and a half feet tall was used to link up with other soldiers and they would march toward the enemy little by little protecting them from the arrows that were coming that were obviously uh, inflamed and the, 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 the design of these arrows were to more than likely to cause the shields to also become hot and, and maybe cause them to drop or to destroy them or whatever but they, the Romans were, were very much aware of this and they, they used stuff on their shield that would prevent them from being engulfed by the flames. And that's why they were terrified by most of their opponents when they saw them line up like this and start marching toward them because they were invincible. They were unstoppable. There was nothing that the, that the opposing enemy could do to stop these Romans from doing what they did best, and that is to conquer those who were in opposition to their forces. But notice what you can, you can extinguish you can extinguish. I, I, I think you need to look at that very closely. And you can extinguish. Not that you might, but you can. That, that's huge. Look at the confidence. When you raise the shield of faith, it's not maybe. It's I can. It is a reality. It is a confidence that comes in helping me understand and realize that I can move forward with confidence knowing that whatever the enemy, in any circumstance, whatever situation, whatever hardship, whatever trial, whatever difficulty comes my way, I can succeed. I can continue to advance. Luke chapter 4, we'll close with this illustration. Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, beginning with verse 47. Jesus, again, is back in Cana of Galilee where he performed the beautiful miracle of the water being turned into wine. And verse 47 said, When this man heard that Jesus had come in from the Judea of Galilee, he heard. Where do, when does faith begin? Let me give you a, a beautiful passage, Romans 10, 17. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by Hearing. When did your faith begin? When you heard the call. Faith comes by hearing what? The gospel. That's where our faith began. This man heard that Jesus had come into town. And he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you are, see a sign and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is not really talking to the dad because dad really doesn't care about wonders and miracles. All he cares about is his son being healed. He's really talking to the, to the group that's there who is you know, in awe of all that Jesus did. And then verse 49, it says, and the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your son will live. Now, notice what happens here. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and did what? He went on his way. Faith is more than just seeing. If you put your faith in what you see, you're not going to have much faith at all. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. You won't see before the fact. 
You hear the call and you answer the call. And as you answer the call and move forward by faith, that's when faith becomes a reality and God then acts. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Notice this beautiful passage in verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. When was his son healed? The moment he turned by faith in Christ as the object of his faith, trusted the words of Jesus and the personhood of Jesus, and he turned and he believed and he advanced and he moved forward to that which he knew would happen, and it happened. Not by sight, but by faith. We've got to move forward by faith, not by sight. I don't know what you're facing today. And I know we have people in our auditorium and in our church membership and fellowship and in our community groups that suffer incredible things in their lives and are going through incredible battles and challenges and difficulties and hardships. And you keep a lot of that to yourself and you share some of it in your small group. Patty and I were talking about that today, this morning on the way to church, that sometimes to think about all that some of us are going through can be overwhelming if you if you think about it too long. But I do know that, that there's one who knows what you're going through today. And I do know that no, no matter what it is, whatever circumstance, whatever situation, whatever challenge, whatever obstacle, whatever giant, whatever, whatever temptation, whatever it is that is confronting you today, challenging your faith, Jesus who is the object of your faith, is more than sufficient. It's not about your small faith. Your faith is a gift. And you have already been given sufficient faith. His name is Jesus. And if you will turn to him, look to him, rely upon him, and start advancing by faith toward that which you know God has said, will become so. He is sufficient. He's more than enough. He is more than able. Trust him. He will provide. He will make a way. He will lift you up. And he will defeat and defend for you whatever, everything the enemy may throw at you to discredit, to destroy, to get you to coward, to run, to be fearful, and to be afraid. For he is more than enough. And if you have Jesus, you have all you need. For Christ alone is the object of our faith, and because he is the object of our faith, we have been equipped with all the faith we need because we have all of Jesus. So have you taken that step of faith? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ? It's not up to you, really. It's up to him to give you the faith in order to turn to Christ, to put your faith in him. Have you done that today? Put your faith and trust in Christ. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing an invitation hymn, and we'd like to invite you to respond to that invitation. To come to our next steps area here to my right, to your left, and say, you know, I want to take that step of faith 
And I want to take up the shield of faith, and I want to trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord. It's not up to what you can do, but based upon what he has already done. All you have to do is put your faith and trust in the person of Christ who has done all that is necessary to save you from your sin, and he will do it. Believer, already empowered with enough faith, more than sufficient enough because of the person of Jesus Christ who dwells in you through his spirit. Are you taking up the shield of faith? It's one thing to recognize the enemy and to see the circumstances and all that. It's another thing to say, well, I've got faith. Then you've got to pick it up. And just because it's been given to you and you hold it in your hand doesn't mean that it's elevated to a position of defending you against whatever the enemy throws at you. That's your responsibility. Have you taken it up? Have you empowered the faith that is already yours because of the person of Jesus Christ? Our next question is simply pretty easy. What do you need to do starting today to take up the shield of faith to protect your family? This is an opportunity for us to talk about family. Without faith, your family is not being protected. So what are you doing today in order to make that a reality in your marriage as a parent, as a child or a student? The shield of faith. What is the next step that God has for you today? Let's pray.